You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So one of the things that my family does on a normal night is that over dinner, as we're sitting around the table, we talk about the highs and lows of our day. Some of you guys probably do this too. We, we just ask the question, what is it that happened today that made you really excited? What happened today that was tough, was difficult? What, what was your high and what was your low? And we do this and uh, we try to help the kids name their emotions. We try to draw out the language of the heart. And it, it tends to be the most chaotic thing I do, okay? I just want to help you in how you're imagining this. Don't think that there's anything about this that is orderly. Most of the time, it's, it's just absolutely crazy town. Because we, we have some younger kids and some older kids. There's a range there. And so as we're doing this, most of the time there's a lot of squirming going on. There's a lot of side conversations and corrections that need to be made and all that. And so it's a bit of a, bit of a messy ordeal. But somehow, somehow throughout all of, of, of that, we managed to get the highs and lows. We managed to hear high points and low points. And I think that's important because we, we all have highs and lows. As family members, as individuals, and as families as a whole, there are gifts and losses. There are blessings and disappointments. The life of a family has its highs and it has its lows, and so does the life of a church. This, us, the church, the local church, the life of a local church is full of things that we have to endure, burdens to carry, valleys to walk through, complexities to navigate. If one member suffers, all members suffer Together, we as a church have our lows and we have our highs. There are the ways that God's faithfulness is displayed for us. There are the ways that he provides for us. There are the evidences of grace in our lives. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And I wonder if, if, if we were to ask each of us, What's one high point for you in our church in 2021? What would it be? Just think about that question. What, what is one high point for you in the life of our church this past year? I try to reflect on these things this time of year, and there are a handful of moments that stand out to me. The choir's one. That was awesome. But he, here are three big ones that stand out. The, the first is when our parents dedicate their children to God. Another is when we as a church celebrate the grace of God in baptism. And then another big moment is when we receive new members into our covenant membership as a church. These are, these are high points for us. And recently I was thinking about these things and I noticed one common thread in all three of those. And uh, in each of the, these three things I mentioned, each of these events, there are things that we say together. And I want to read to you some of what we say, and I want you to, to hear it and, and, and try to pick up a theme in all three, okay? 
So first, when it comes to child dedications, this is one thing we ask our parents. So, so listen to this. We say, we ask the parents, do you promise God helping you to make it your regular prayer that by God's grace, your children will come to trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins and for the fulfillment of all his promises to them. And in this faith, follow Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and supreme treasure of their lives. Then at baptism, we ask the third baptismal question. This is while they're sitting in the water. The, the third question we ask, we say, do you intend now, by God's help, to obey the teachings of Jesus and to follow him as your Lord, Savior, and treasure? And then when we receive new members into our covenant membership, and we all as covenant members affirm our membership covenant together, we start that covenant like this. Having been led, as we believe, by the Spirit of God, to embrace Jesus as the Lord, Savior, and supreme treasure of our lives, we enter into covenant together. Okay. So you hear all three of those? What's, I wonder, what stands out in all three of those things? Did you guys catch any themes in what was read and what we say? The first, I think, is that we call Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> because that's his name, and he's a real person. Amen. His name is Jesus. But then also, we say, in all three of those things, we say that we embrace Jesus as Lord, Savior, and treasure. Now, most of the time, the way Christians talk about Jesus is, is we'll say that he is our Lord and Savior. And he, he is. But we add to that. We don't just say Lord and Savior. We say Lord, Savior, and treasure. And we add that treasure part for all the reasons that Pastor David Mathis showed us last week. Jesus as Lord and Savior is who he is and what he does. Jesus as treasure is what he is like as Lord and Savior. It's the paradox of Jesus as the lion and the lamb, the one who is mighty and meek, the one who is transcendent and near, fully God and fully man. There is nobody like Jesus, nobody. He's a treasure. He is Lord, Savior, and treasure. And he is king. If there's one thing clear about Christmas, is that Jesus came as the king. I think, I think that's the most repeated theme in all of our favorite Christmas songs. Okay, help me out here. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And I'm sure there are so many more. Jesus is a king. We know it. It's clear. Jesus came as king. And so how should we think about this? How does Jesus' kingship fit with him as Lord, Savior, and treasure? Why not add king to that list? Lord, Savior, treasure, king. We could. We could add that. We could also add priest and way and truth and life. 
There's a lot of things that we could add. What Jesus is inexhaustible, the glory of Jesus is inexhaustible to describe. We're never going to get it all in a sentence. And so the way to think about Jesus's kingship and priesthood, as we're going to see next week, is that Lord, Savior, and treasure are descriptions of Jesus. But Jesus as king is the office that he holds. Descriptions of Jesus, Lord, Savior, treasure, the office he holds. It's like, you can say it this way, Jesus being a king is his job, as it were. You go to work every day and you do what you do at work. Jesus goes to work as king. He's a king. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus, our king. There are three things I want us to see in Luke chapter 1 about the kingship of Jesus. This is the sermon outline. Number one is that Jesus, our king, was long expected. Jesus, our king, was long expected. Number two is that Jesus, our king, is unlike other kings. And then lastly, number three, Jesus, our king, must be obeyed. Let's pray. Um, Lord Jesus, I confess that I am a severely weak man whose only chance of doing anything of any lasting good is if you work through me. In our weakness, you promise to be strong, and I ask for your strength this morning. Jesus, I ask that you stand by me and that you help me. That by your spirit and through your word, you show us your glory and your great name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the first right here is that Jesus, our king, was long expected. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 32. The angel Gabriel Uh, Sent by God to Mary, he comes and he tells her that she will conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Jesus. Then in verse 32, Gabriel explains a little bit more. Verse 32, he, speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And so right away, make no mistake about it, this baby is a king. And that would have been the most obvious part of all of this to Mary in this encounter. And that's obvious to her. She gets this part mainly because of her Jewish faith. See, Mary had a king category. Because going back hundreds of years, echoing through the pages of the Hebrew scriptures, there was a promise about a king who would come, and not just any king, but there was a promise about a king to come in the lineage of David. And so that part of what Gabriel says is making sense to Mary. So much of what Gabriel says, all the rest of it pretty much, is troubling to her. The whole encounter is troubling, like verse 29 says. This was a surprise. This was the OG unplanned pregnancy, okay? She had no, no, had no idea that she would be the one chosen by God to carry this king. All of that is a surprise. But the king in the line of David part, Mary had heard that before. And she knew that she was of the house of David. 
So she puts that together. She's tracking with that. Which is why the first thing she says back to Gabriel is not, I have no idea what you're talking about. But she says, how will this happen? Do you notice that in the text? that's That's her question. It's not what, a king, David, huh? No. She says, okay, how? And so Gabriel goes on to explain the virgin birth. He doesn't have to explain the king part. Mary gets the king part. And so what I want us to do for just a minute is to try to to, to step into her shoes. Where does this hope for a king come from in the Old Testament? Where does it come from? So I want us now to, to go back to the Old Testament and let's see basically three mile marker passages in the Old Testament that basically highlight this expectation for a king. Think about this as like a cheat sheet when it comes to the Old Testament hope for Israel's future king. Where does it come from? There are three main texts I want you to know. First is Deuteronomy 17. Second is 2 Samuel 7. And then 1 Kings 10. These are just bullet points when it comes to the storyline of Israel's king. You don't have to turn to the passages. I'm just going to briefly explain them to you starting in Deuteronomy 17. Okay, In Deuteronomy 17, the people of Israel have been set free from Egypt. They've received the law of God. They have received the arrangement of God's presence through the temple despite their sinfulness. They have received the promise of their own land, which is where they've been headed now through 40 years of wandering in the desert. And now finally, they are about to enter the promised land and Moses is preparing them to enter the land by basically preaching a sermon. And in this sermon, Moses summarizes the law for them. He recounts their history and he prophesies about their future and he tells them that one day they're going to have kings. Now this time they had no kings at all. They had really no category for kings themselves because God was their king. God was the one who was in charge, the one they looked to. They didn't need human kings, but one day in the future, they're going to want a king, and God will give them a king. And so in view of that, Moses lays out some stipulations for these kings. Moses says, okay, look, here are some things that the king should do, and here are some things that the king should not do. And on the positive side, Moses says that Israel's king is to be devoted to the word of God. He is to devote himself to the word of the Lord. He is to write a copy of the law and keep it with him all the time. He's to read the words of the law day and night, all the days of his life. Okay, remember that part. It's Deuteronomy 17. Now, 2 Samuel 7. This is later on in Israel's history where God has given them a king. The first king was Saul, and Saul the first king of Israel, he was like your typical George Washington type figure in that he was a man's man. He was a natural leader. His presence commanded attention, but Saul proved unfaithful. And so God takes the kingdom. He took the kingdom from Saul and he gave it to a little shepherd boy named David. And that moment when God does this, is one of the most significant moments in the whole king's storyline because Jesse, David's father, had eight sons. David was the youngest of these eight sons. 
And at first, when the prophet Samuel came to find the son of Jesse that God had chosen to be the next king, David wasn't even there. And right away, as Samuel comes and he sees Jesse's sons, he thought it was Eliab, the first son. He thought for sure this is the king, but God said no. And so then Samuel said, oh, it must be Abinadab. And again, God said no. And then Samuel said, okay, well, it has to be Shammah. But again, God's answer was no. And Jesse put forward seven of his sons in this same way. This one, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And each time, one after the other, God kept saying no. He said no to them all. And Samuel the prophet is confused. And he says, okay, Jesse, is this all your sons? And Jesse replies back to him. He says, well, yeah, except for the youngest. And that word in English translated youngest is is really a word that it's not so much about birth order, but it's a word that means insignificant one. It means, it's, it's that we, in English, we might say little guy, the little guy, the shrimp, the little shrimp. Samuel says to Jesse, he says, seven no's. God sent him to find the king, seven no's. And he says, okay, Jesse, are these all your boys? Are these these all your sons? And Jesse says, yeah, I mean, except for a little shrimp watching sheep. A little shrimp out in the field. And Samuel says, okay, go get him, bring him. And so Jesse does. And when David comes, could you imagine this scene? Seven of his brothers standing there, strong, big brother strong. And this little shrimp comes in from the field. And he walks up, and the Lord says, that's him, that one. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And David, this little guy, he is anointed the king of Israel. And there's a lesson here for us. And, and Samuel, he gets the lesson. The lesson is, look, God doesn't see as man sees. Man, we, us, we look at the outward appearance. But what does God do? God looks at the heart. And although it didn't seem like David would be the guy, David is God's man. God makes him king against all odds. That is 2 Samuel 7. Where then God takes David and says to him another outrageous thing. A king, made king against all odds. And then God says to him that one day, this is, this is one of the most important promises in the Bible. God tells David that one day God will raise up his offspring to be a king forever. The shepherd boy, David, God says to him, you will have a son one day, a son in your lineage, and I will establish the kingdom of this son forever. This son will be the anointed one. This son, your son, David, will be the true and forever Messiah. Okay, remember this, 2 Samuel 7. Deuteronomy 17, 2 Samuel 7, 
Now, 1 Kings 10. Now, 1 Kings 10 is important because it's all about Solomon, David's son, who was king, who became king after David. And what's important about 1 Kings 10 is that many people thought that Solomon was this son of David that God promised in 2 Samuel 7 because he seemed to fit the bill. Solomon was a son of David. God did establish Solomon's kingdom, and his kingdom, Solomon's kingdom, flourished under his reign, at least at first. Because what we find in 1 Kings 10 changes things. Remember back in Deuteronomy 17, there's the list of things the king should and should not do. Well, the negative side, the positive side, devote yourself to the word of the Lord. The negative side is that the king of Israel must not do three things, must not do three things. One, he must not acquire many horses. Two, he must not acquire excessive silver and gold. And three, he must not acquire many wives. And so see, some fall. We think maybe in the narrative here that Solomon is this promised king. Solomon might be the one. But then in 1 Kings 10, we read almost like a list that Solomon had 12,000 horsemen a lot of horses. He had more gold than anyone in history. Gold everywhere. He had so much silver. Solomon had so much silver that, that silver wasn't even worth anything. During, that's, a lot, that's a lot of silver. That's a lot of gold. And then we read that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And that's a lot of that. (laughs) All this means is by the time we finish reading 1 Kings 10, we say, wait a minute. Solomon can't be the guy. Solomon can't be the promised king. And so we have to look to the next king and then the next king. But then the kingdom falls apart. And all we see from here out is one king after another rises and falls. They come and they go. Some are good, most are bad, but they all die. None of them last forever, which means where is this promised king from 2 Samuel 7? Where is he? Is he really going to come? Is this king going to come or not? By the end of the Old Testament, by the time we get to the very end of the Old Testament, Israel as a nation is in exile, and they are still looking, still wondering, still waiting for this king. We're looking for this king to be born in the lineage of David. Where is this king in the line of David? And then what does Gabriel say to Mary? He says, your son, Mary, your son named Jesus, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And Mary knew about that. She knew. Jesus, our king, was long expected. But then secondly, also, Jesus, our king, is unlike other kings. He's unlike other kings. Jesus is a king in his own class. Nobody has ever been a king like him for at least two reasons. One, his reign is eternal. And two, 
His reign is good. Look at verse 33. This newborn king from the house of David, the long-expected, long-awaited king, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, there are lots of kings. There's been lots of kings throughout the history of the world. Lots of kingdoms. But no king or kingdom has ever lasted forever. None except this one. Jesus is unlike other kings because there will never be a king to succeed him. No king will ever be over him, but all kings will always be under him. That is why he is called the king of kings. He's the king of kings. All the kings in the world, Jesus is the king of those kings. And that is not hypothetical and it's not subjective. It is a bold fact. Fact. It's the truth about reality. Christmas is about Jesus coming here to be king forever. And and since it's forever, since Jesus is king forever, that applies to right now. Don't hear the word eternal or don't hear the word forever and think way out there someday. Instead think in this moment and unceasingly so. That's what eternal means. Right now, in this moment, Jesus is king and he will always be king, which means part of our witness to Jesus is not inviting people to make Jesus their king. It's exhorting people to recognize Jesus as the king. This is is part of the problem of pluralism. Okay. While we absolutely respect, we do, we respect the dignity of neighbors, humans. We respect the dignity of every human to believe whatever they choose. We respect that. However, every belief system is not equally valid. Only one is ultimate. Only one king of kings lasts forever. Just one. So we have to be careful that we don't slip into this, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. That actually is not true for anybody. (laughs) Jesus, our king, will have none of that. And the proclamation of the gospel Demands it. The proclamation of the gospel says that Jesus is king and we are all guilty of treason. We either repent and submit to his kingship now or we continue in our rebellion and we face his judgment. That's what we're looking at here. That's what it means that Jesus is king. And if we're honest, this is something that is not easy for us, especially in our American society where we have such a distaste for monarchy and for authority. The American spirit, you know, is anti-king. The American spirit is anti-authority. Don't, don't tread on me. We the people. In our historical imagination, kings are tyrants. 
And in many cases throughout human history, that has been true. But it's been true because of our depravity, not because monarchy as a form of government is wrong. Monarchy is God's design for government. In the new creation, which is the future of this world, everything in this world is trending toward that future day. In the new creation, we will not have a democratic republic. You know that, right? That's not the new creation. In the new creation, there's going to be a kingdom with a king who rules over everything. And all will bow to him. All will bow to him and confess his glory. The reign of Jesus, our king, is eternal, current, right now. Whether we like it or not, whether we are submitting to it or not, Jesus is is king and he's king now and forever but also also and this makes all the difference this makes all the difference jesus our king has a reign that's not just eternal he has a reign that is good jesus our king is good and i love to talk about his goodness this is where it all comes together see jesus our king is lord savior and treasure he's unlike other kings not just because he's eternal but because he is truly good in the deepest sense of the word he is the truly righteous king he is the king who will put all things as they should be and whose power is seen in his mercy We proclaimed that in the gospel too because that is the gospel. That is the good news. It's that Jesus is king and we're all guilty of treason. Every last one of us is guilty of treason. But somehow, to our great surprise, in the command to repent is the assurance of our complete forgiveness. Our complete forgiveness is that if we turn from our treason, if we turn from our sins and bow to Jesus, he will erase all of our guilt. Even if you have been on the payroll of hell, even if you are drowning in shame, bow to Jesus and be forgiven. Bow to Jesus, the king, and you can be cleansed. How? How? It's because Jesus is the king who gave his life for his people. Rather than execute judgment on the guilty, he suffered judgment in the guilty's place. What king ever did that? Do you see the kind of king that he is? There is no limit to his power. He upholds the universe by his words. He sits forever on his throne. He has the whole world in his hands. And yet on the night that he was betrayed, he took those same hands and he tied a towel around his waist and he bent down to the ground to wash his disciples' feet. 
He is a king who doesn't use his power for his gain, but he saves his people at greatest cost to himself. He is a king who doesn't bend his subjects to meet his needs, but he calls his subjects beloved, and he restores them to God's original purpose, life abundant and everlasting. There is no king like Jesus. So what are you doing? What are we doing about this king? What do we do about Jesus the king? Unlike any other king there's ever been. This is the third and final point. Jesus our king must be obeyed. We learn here from the example of Mary But before we look at Mary's response to Gabriel, I just want to be clear about what happened here, about what's going on. Mary was a Jewish girl engaged to be married to Joseph. And although the Gospels don't tell us her exact age, because we know she was a virgin, and because we know she's engaged, according to the customs of this time, she was most likely a young teenager. Think 16 years old. So the angel Gabriel comes to this 16-year-old girl and he tells this 16-year-old girl that she's going to become pregnant with the promised king from the house of David. And the way she will conceive is a miracle. God will do it. He will make it happen by no human cooperation. The embryo will just be. And the child will grow and it will show. Mary this 16-year-old engaged girl, unmarried girl, will look the way all women look when they are pregnant. You know, she'll look pregnant because she'll be pregnant. And I doubt that we appreciate the social cost that this meant for her. The obvious conclusion of everyone around Mary when they saw her would be that she had either sinned with Joseph prior to marriage or she had been unfaithful to him. This sincere, faithful, 16-year-old Jewish girl would be seen as insincere and unfaithful. And not just in her pregnancy, but all the days of Jesus' life because people can do math. So Jesus is six years old. Welcome to the fourth grade. Not fourth grade kindergarten he's six he lost his teeth great so wait how long have you been married again how long have you we know that later on in Jesus's ministry when Jesus was around 30 years old in his 30s he's in a dispute with the Pharisees and one of the Pharisees said to him we were not born of sexual immorality which implied that they believe he was, which means there was a reputation three decades after Gabriel visited Mary. This misunderstanding of Mary, this wrong interpretation of her pregnancy was not just a nine months thing, but it followed her the rest of her life and she knew it would. When Gabriel said what he said to her, she knew what it meant. God sent Gabriel 
the angel, to tell Mary something outrageous, something she did not sign up for, something that had a cost that she would pay for the rest of her life. And what did she say to Gabriel? What is this 16-year-old girl's response to the shocking announcement of God? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Luke, the gospel writer, he tells us this for our benefit. This this encounter with Gabriel ends, it ends with this response of Mary because her response isn't an example of the response that we all should have when we meet Jesus. The story ends with her response and we should think, oh, okay, I need to learn from her. There's something I need to learn here in how she responds. Because Jesus is the true king, the king of kings, whose reign is eternal and good, what do we do? What do we do? We do like Mary. We obey. We say from our hearts, behold, I am, I am the servant of the Lord Whatever you want. Whatever you want. Which means we're not checking a box with Jesus. This this doesn't mean that we try to relegate Jesus as some kind of side gig to our lives. It means that we, we yield to him our everything. It means that we surrender to Jesus our all. You guys know that song? I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. You know the song, I Surrender All? I Surrender All. It's an old song, like late 1800s. I Surrender All. I Surrender All. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I Surrender All. That is how we must respond to Jesus, our King. That's how we do it. And in fact, that's what we do every Sunday when we come together at this table. For those of us who have obeyed Jesus, our King, for those of us who have, by God's grace, turned from our treason and bowed to him in faith, when we receive the bread and the cup, we are saying that indeed we trust Jesus We belong to Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. When we take the bread and the cup, we are saying afresh, we are saying anew, behold, we are servants of the Lord. Whatever he wants, whatever he wants, we surrender all. And when it comes to highs and lows, high points and low points, church, this is the true high point for us. This is the true high point for us. When we remember together as a church, we remember the love of Jesus and his gospel, which we do right now for the 51st time of 2021. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.